To be or not to be? That is the question. Well, seriously, you had to have known that at some point Hamlet was going to appear, right? Um, I've been carrying around this skull, or it's been on the table for a while, and so uh, you had to have known that Hamlet was going to make an appearance. But uh, the subject of death is certainly a major theme in theater, in television, and in movies. But in the movies, in TV, and theater, death is always dark and depressing. And so sadly, it's not surprising that our ideas of death, even as Christians in the church, our ideas of death are often more secular than they are biblical. But I believe that a Christian's view of death should be altogether different than the world's view of death. And so today, as we resume our study on dying and death, it's Ars Moriendi, I'm going to share with you a number of powerful quotes that I think help reorient our minds around what we believe as Christians around the subject of death. For example, Tertullian said, death is the golden chariot that ushers us into the presence of God. Death is the golden chariot that ushers us into the presence of God. John Bunyan said, death is but a passage out of a prison and into a palace. Do you believe that? Death is something we cannot escape we must not ignore and for which the wise will prepare. Charles Spurgeon said, he who does not prepare for death is a madman. And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis 2 and 3. Also go to Romans 7 and 8 and 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be all over the place this morning as we continue this series of Ars Moriendi, the art of dying. And this sermon series will focus primarily on what the scripture says about death. But then along with that, I'm weaving in some of the things I've learned as a pastor, as I've come alongside people who are dying or as I come alongside families who are grieving the loss of a loved one. And once again, my basic thesis is that a person can only die a good death if they have lived their life knowing that they will indeed die. If you will recall, two weeks ago, we began this series, we introduced this series on dying and death by looking in Genesis at the five separations we see there. The five types of death that we see in Genesis chapter three. Number one, which is what we talked about last week, the most significant death is man separated from God. This week, we're gonna take a look at the second one and that is man separated from himself, both psychologically and physically. Next week, we'll take a look at man separated from fellow man. Then in future weeks, we'll talk about man separated from creation and creation separated from creation. But again, this week, specifically what we're going to talk about is man's separation within himself. This death that takes place within ourselves on both the psychological and physical dimension. Psychologically, because of sin, we now experience things like guilt and shame and insecurities of all kinds. And physically, because of sin, we know that one day we will physically die. Our body and our soul will be separated. And as we await that day, we suffer with things like pain and disease and sickness. And so today, there on your outline, you can see what we're going to do together this morning. We're going to take a look at 
The problem, the solution, and the application. Pretty simple. The problem, both the psychological problem and the physical problem, the guilt and shame and insecurities as well as death itself and sickness and disease. The solution we'll see under number two on your outline, the psychological solution of our identity in Christ, the physical solution of our security in Christ. And then we'll also talk about application. How we today, both psychologically and physically, can live wisely in light of the fact that one day we will die. So again, grab your Bible. We're going to begin by just reviewing a few things we've seen in past weeks here in Genesis chapter 2. Let me read for you verses 15 through 17. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden, this is before the fall, to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. God here gives a promise to Adam and Eve of the consequence that will follow if they choose sin. God says, dying you will die. Dying you will surely die. And of course, we know the story. They eat the fruit and sin enters the world and death through sin. But what I want to focus on this morning is notice Adam and Eve's reaction in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3. They've sinned and now sin has entered the world and then notice their reaction, their response in Genesis 3, 7 and 8. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And notice this, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife, notice, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so once Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid. They hid. Because a natural consequence within us when we sin is guilt and shame and insecurity. They knew that they were naked, they, they hid, they tried to cover that sin and that shame. Psychologically, Adam and Eve now know guilt and shame and insecurities. And all of this is because of that sin. The brilliant scholar Francis Schaeffer says this, Man has fear. Man has psychological problems. How does a Christian understand these? Primarily as the abnormal separation of man from himself. Man's basic psychosis is his separation from God carried into his own personality as a separation from himself. By the way, Schaefer nor am I are denying the reality of legitimate chemical imbalances and things like this that is real, but what we're focusing in on here is just those feelings of guilt and shame and insecurity. And when we think about these feelings of guilt and shame and insecurity that we all experience, it's all because of this inner division within ourselves, this psychological division within our souls. This is just the psychological. 
We also see evidence of this physical division that will one day come. As a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, now they experience things like pain and eventually physical death. Notice chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, Eve, he, God, said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Now, because of their sin, Adam and Eve will experience pain. Specifically here, Eve, the the pain of childbirth. But as we read throughout the scripture, we now know that over time, sickness and pain and disease will spread throughout all of humanity. Later, Adam and Eve themselves will physically die. Their bodies and their souls will be separated from one another. Now death is inevitable for all people. D.A. Carson said, We are not gods, and by death we will learn that we are only human. Remember, Satan's lie said that you will be like God. But death is a reminder that we are not God. We are not God's. Death is a reminder that we are only human. So here we see in Genesis 2 and 3 this introduction to this separation of man within himself on both the psychological and the physical. And when we think about this today, we see evidences of this division, both psychologically and physical, all around us. We know that we're broken, and we seek all kinds of ways, man-made ways, in order to try to resolve that brokenness within us. Think about this, psychologically, think of all the things we do to try to mask and hide the psychological brokenness that we know that we have. Some people try to ignore that pain, that insecurity, that psychological division, they try to numb it through Uh, substances, addictions to things like drugs and alcohol and things like that. Other people try to distract themselves from that brokenness they know that's within them through endless entertainment, just pleasures of life. And as long as I just keep myself happy, I don't have to think about this guilt and shame and insecurity within my soul. I want you to take a moment just a few moments of stillness and quiet and think about what are some of the ways that you or what are some of the ways in which people try to mask and hide that psychological division within each and every one of us. That's the psychological. There's also the physical. There are ways in which we try to delay the inevitability of death. And although, certainly, although modern medicine is a gift from God, it's a gift from God, we can also, if we're not careful, we can begin to abuse the healthcare system and attempt to play God. We've created the ability to terminate life inside the womb and outside the womb, right? God told Eve, you will have pain in childbirth, and we have come up with creative ways in order to avoid that pain. There's a whole field of medical ethics we have to consider about what is appropriate for a Christian and what's inappropriate for a Christian because it's ultimately taking life in our hands. So again, take just a moment, a few moments of stillness and think for yourself, what are some of the other unhealthy ways in which we try to mask and and fix this physical brokenness that we know one day we're going to face?
These are some of the extreme versions, but there's also milder versions, more culturally acceptable versions of things we do. Sometimes we try to cover and conceal our true selves and we hide behind the brand of clothes we wear or the type of car we drive or the neighborhoods we live in. We project certain perfect images of ourselves on social media and we mask the things, the brokenness that we know lie underneath. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, we're still, even now, covering ourselves, hiding ourselves from ourselves and from other people. We're afraid to look inward and really think about those guilts and insecurities that we carry and we uh, wrestle with. Again, Francis Schaeffer said this, all men are liars but most importantly, each man lies to himself. We lie to ourselves about these guilts and insecurities and the shame. We try to come up with these man-made solutions to the problem of this brokenness within us, this separation within us, both psychologically and physically. But deep down, we know that our best efforts don't work. And by the way, We see this same thing taking place in the New Testament. This is not just true of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, but it's also true in the New Testament. It's also true of Christians. This is not just unbelievers who do this, but Christians do this as well. I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 7 for a minute. Here in Romans chapter 7, we see that this struggle, this division inwardly, especially the psychological, can occur even as born-again, Holy Spirit-indwelled, redeemed Christians. We see in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14, this conflict that goes on within the Apostle Paul. Now, there are some scholars who argue over whether or not Paul was describing this, uh, viewing himself as a Christian or a a non-Christian, a believer or an unbeliever. I hold the view that Paul here is describing himself as a Christian, as a believer, this internal struggle within himself, even as a Holy Spirit-redeemed individual. But notice what Paul says here in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. And feel this wrestling going on within the Apostle Paul. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want." But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle, verse 21, that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. Notice this, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Notice verse 24, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Notice Paul's description here of this inner war and turmoil that's going on within his soul. Have you ever felt this war raging within you? This 
psychological division. You want to do what's good and pleasing to the Lord, but at the same time, you choose sin. One of our former associate pastors, Chuck Swindoll, you might have heard of him, he said this, all of us are chronically addicted to sin. Long after we are saved, our bodies crave that which gave us short-term pleasure. And the pull to indulge the craving for sin will always be a part of our lives, at least until we are freed from the body of this death. death verse 24. As for the present wretched man that I am. Do you feel this tension? This war going on? Francis Schaeffer also said, every man is in tension until he finds a satisfactory answer to the problem of who he himself is. Every man is in tension. We're in tension within ourselves until we find the solution of who we really are. And it's to that idea that I now want to turn your attention as we look at number two on your outline, God's solution to this inner division and separation that takes place within us. We're going to stay here in Romans. And we're going to start broadly and then get specific. But God's solution to our problem, both the psychological and the physical separation within us is ultimately found in the gospel. I want you to notice what Paul says there at the end of chapter 7, verse 25. After asking that question, what wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Notice who, not what. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then notice chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, notice this, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, notice he condemned, not the believer, but he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's three crucial things I want you to see here in these verses. Number one, there's no condemnation. If you're in Christ, You've put your faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation. You still might feel that guilt and shame and those insecurities, but what you need to understand is that when God sees you, he sees the very righteousness of his son. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Notice there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but notice verse 3, Jesus did condemn sin in the flesh. He doesn't ignore sin, he condemns sin, and this leads me to number two. He has set us free from the control of sin in our life. We see this especially there in verse 2. But you have been set free from sin and from death. And notice that's past tense with 
ongoing results here. You can live in the freedom from sin that you have in Christ. You don't have to obey your flesh. The Holy Spirit enables you to die to your sin. God doesn't condemn you, but he also doesn't want you to stay there in your sin. He's freed you from sin and death, that sin that produces that shame and guilt and insecurity in your life. And the third crucial thing I want you to see here is that this is possible because and only because of what God did. God sent his son. He sent Jesus to accomplish what we could not accomplish. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. There on the cross, Jesus experienced this separation that we're talking about. He experienced a physical separation when his body was separated from his soul and he died a real death. He suffered and he experienced agony and pain. But also as the man of sorrows of Isaiah 53, he took upon himself the guilt and the shame and the sin that were ours. The good news of the gospel is that Through Jesus, God offers to you freely this gift of eternal life and full reconciliation. And through Jesus, you have a new identity. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you are a child of God. And all you can do is to accept that gift through faith. This morning, whether here in person or watching online, if you've never accepted that gift through faith in Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation to put your faith, your trust in him now. And as a result, I want you to listen to the words of D.L. Moody. He said, the valley of the shadow of death holds no darkness for the child of God. There must be light, else there could be no shadow. Jesus is the light. He has overcome death. And that's the good news of the gospel. Now that's general. Now let's get specific and talk specifically both about the psychological and the physical aspects to our own personal death. To the psychological, I want you to, again, look at Romans chapter 8, look at verses 14 through 17. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, Paul says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, notice these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. Think of Adam and Eve there in the garden, they're afraid. But you have received a spirit, notice this, of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. There's several things I want you to notice here in these verses regarding the way we think of ourselves, our psychology. Notice the words like sons of God there in verse 14, children of God, verse 16, as well as the words adoption and the cry of our spirit, Abba, Father, there in verse 15. Notice the transformation that Paul describes here. We were once slaves to sin, but now we're adopted as children of God, and now God looks on you lovingly and affectionately as his child, and you can run to him crying out, Abba, Father, you don't have to hide away in sin and in shame like Adam and Eve in the garden, but you can run to the loving arms of your father. This is a, a total change in our identity and our relationship. 
from slaves to children, and not just children, but also heirs. This is God's solution to our psychological turmoil. This guilt and shame that we feel we can run to God knowing that our identity is in Christ and we're his children. That's the psychological, but also notice the physical. Jump ahead to Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Here we see God's solution to our physical problem of our body and soul being separated. Look at verses 35 through 39. Paul says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, notice all the physical terms here, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are being considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice what Paul says here. He says, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded. There's not a hint of doubt in the Apostle Paul's mind. He's, he's convinced that there's nothing in life not even the archenemy of death itself. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But notice as well what he says here. Paul doesn't deny the ongoing reality of physical suffering. The truth is that because of our sin, we still will experience pain and suffering and hardship and Tribulation, the things Paul lists here. Certainly God can heal, but as long as we're in this mortal body, we suffer. But because of Christ, we can view suffering and pain and disease and hardship differently. One scholar says, death is not now the death of me, but death will be the death of my misery, the death of my sins. It will be the death of my corruptions, but death will be my birthday in regard to happiness. Likewise, James Montgomery Boyce said, by death, I shall escape from death. And that then leads me to 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to jump over to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul here talking about the promise, the ultimate promise of a future bodily resurrection. God's ultimate solution to the problem of our physical suffering and our physical death is the promise of one day a bodily resurrection. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 42. Paul says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there will also be a spiritual body. And then flip over to verse 53. 
For this imperishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But notice verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's ultimate solution to the problem of our physical death is this idea of a resurrected and glorified body. To summarize everything we're saying here, that because of the fall, mankind is separated from himself, both psychologically and physically. Psychologically, we experience guilt and shame and insecurity, and physically, we experience pain and suffering and even death. This is the problem. But the solution that the gospel brings is that there is hope in life and in death. Psychologically, we need to understand that we've been adopted as children of God. We're no longer slaves to sin. We no longer have to carry around the weight of that sin and guilt and shame. We've been set free. Physically, although our bodies get sick and diseased, and even though we will suffer and eventually die, we can rest in the promise that nothing will separate us from the love of God, and we can rest in the security, the promise God has given us that one day we will receive the blessing of a resurrection body and an imperishable body. Now, to illustrate this, I want to tell you a story of Donald Barnhouse, Donald Gray Barnhouse. His wife died, and as he was driving his kids from the funeral, one of his children asked him, Daddy, I don't understand. Where did mommy go? I don't understand what it means that she died. Barnhouse was trying to figure out how to explain this idea of death to his children when just then a truck passed by and cast a shadow over their car. Barnhouse asked his kids, he said, well, kids, would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow? And they said, of course, the shadow. And he said, well, listen, when you die without Christ, you're hit by the truck. But when you die with Christ, you're only hit by the shadow. The shadow is all you get. And with that in mind, let's take a look at number three on our outline, as we wrestle with this shadow of death, this realization that we're going to die, and along the way we're going to suffer both physically and psychologically, we're going to wrestle with guilt and shame and insecurity, we're going to wrestle with pain and disease and sickness. How do we apply these truths from God's Word to our life today? What's the application? First, let's talk the psychological We all, just like Paul in Romans chapter 7, we all wrestle with this war raging within us. We all are going to wrestle with feelings of shame and insecurities. The most important thing for you to understand, again, is that your identity is in Christ. When God looks on you, he doesn't see that guilt and that shame. He sees the very righteousness of his son. The second thing I want you to understand, though, about this psychological turmoil going on within us is that one of the solutions the Bible gives is the gift of confession. 
When we feel this guilt and shame, these insecurities, we're called upon to confess our sins to God. When we've sinned and feel that, we must go to the cross where we can confess our sin in the knowledge that Jesus has paid for them. And instead of running away and hiding from God like Adam and Eve, we can run towards the loving arms of our Father who loves us, who sent his Son to die for us. We are to run to him, not away from him. And the third thing under this idea of our our psychological division, it comes to this concept of repentance or forsaking sin. So we realize our identity is in Christ. We confess our sin as children of God. We know that we can go to the loving arms of our Father. But then the third thing we need to do is we need to confess, or not only confess that sin, but forsake that sin. So let me ask you a sobering question. If you were to die today, what are the secret sins that you would be embarrassed for your family to discover as they began going through your possessions? What are the things that they would find out about you as they dug through your cabinets, your bedside dresser, your emails, your browsing history? What are those sins that you're still clinging to, that you've not confessed, you've not forsaken? Listen, as a pastor, I'll tell you that this is one of the saddest things I sometimes, thankfully not often, but sometimes have to deal with in families who they've just buried their loved one and then they come to me and say, listen, I discovered these things about uh, my father, my mother, my grandfather that I didn't know before, this secret life that he was hiding away. My friend, before it's too late, I want to encourage you to confess that sin, to remove those things from your life, those things you do to cover your sin, to salve your shame, and to hide yourself from yourself and from other people. That's the psychological Now the physical. How do we live our life wisely today knowing that one day we will physically die? Well, to piggyback off last week, if you've not already begun planning your own funeral service, I want to put that on your radar again. Thank you for those who have already given that to me. Um, But I want to take this a step further. Not only thinking through what we want our service to be like, but also what we want those moments leading up to our death and after our death to be like. And uh, what I want you to do is there on the back side of your outline, uh, you'll find um, to begin putting together an end-of-life plan. Your end-of-life plan. We'll talk about this more and more in a few weeks, but do you have a last will and testament? Do you have beneficiary designations? Do you have an established power of attorney, a living will, advanced directives. There are, there are things, documents you should put in place or get put in place uh, to make it a lot easier for your family once you're physically dead. Uh, one thing many people don't think about, but it's very important, is you should have somewhere a compiled list of all your digital logins and passwords for your family so that they can have access to your bank records and things like that after you're dead and gone. Now listen, I'm guessing that many of you have this stuff lined up, but I want to encourage you that you need to get it up to date. 
It's one thing to put these documents together 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's another thing to make sure they're up to date as your life changes. If you don't have these things lined up, then I would encourage you to do so. Um, If you go speak to an attorney, it will cost you a little bit of money, but in the end, it's worth the investment. Save your family the headache and get these documents in order. Because again, you don't know when you're going to die. So the wise will be prepared. Augustine of Hippo said, nothing is so certain as death and nothing is so uncertain as the hour of death. Soren Kierkegaard, Christianly understood, there is infinitely much more hope in death than there is in life. Again, Christianly understood there is infinitely much more hope in death than there is in life. There's hope in death because of the promises of God. Knowing that we're going to die and living as though it could happen any day, this will motivate us to live a life that is pleasing to God. We can rest in our identity in Christ, knowing that we're children of God. We can rest in our security in Christ, knowing that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And we can rest, most of all, knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a painful and sobering reality to us. And so help us, Father, to rest in the assurances and promises of your word. Help us to know that ultimately our identity is in Christ so we can confess confess our sins. Help us to know that our security is in Christ so that even when we physically suffer, when we experience even physical death, we know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Father, help us to really believe that because of these things, there is now no condemnation. There's no condemnation. And so, Father, help us to live lives where we can confess our sin, we can forsake our sin, when we can rest in the great promises of God, this great promise of a future resurrection, a glorified body, a day when we will be completely freed from the pain and suffering that is this life. But Father, as we wait, fill us with hope. Fill us with an encouragement that we're loved by you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.